Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Undermine Season 4. Again, I am your host, Tom Marshall. Welcome back. We always knew we wanted to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Fall 97 in some way, and now here we are. From now through December, we'll be tracking Fish's progression in the 1990s by focusing on 25 important shows of the 90s leading up to the tour that changed everything, Fall 97. And we'll discuss every show of that tour. Along with the discussion will be more of what everyone asked for, music. We'll be adding lots of music from these shows to illustrate our points. Thanks for joining us on this ride. Our format this year is to do a brief dive into all these shows with the help of a co-host and with a special guest who is either at the show or can otherwise bring some knowledge about that era. My co-host for today is Osiris co-founder and HF pod host, RJB. Hi, RJ. Hey. Tom, good to be back. This is exciting to, to start season four. Um, today, we're going to start with a show from 1990, November 2nd, 1990, from Boulder, Colorado. We we chose to start here because, of course, Colorado has been super important to Fish's evolution. And in 1990, they played 20 shows there. This is a widely circulated tape, um, one of my first tapes, soundboard, amazing sound quality, great, great moments. And we're going to talk about all that. And we're going to talk about it with an amazing guest, John Paluska, who we're going to bring in in one second. And um, I'll let Tom say a little bit about John. But before I do, just let me say, um, anyone who's listening, please check us out on Apple. Uh, Osiris Premium, we have ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and more. And you'll be getting a bunch more Undermine content as well. So if you go to Apple, check out Osiris and, and consider subscribing to Osiris Premium. All right, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about John Paluska for those who don't know before we bring him on? 
Yes. Um, as most of you know, John Paluska was Fish's manager from 1990 to 2004, and he helped the band grow in every way during the 90s. Um, we were lucky enough to have him contribute to our podcast after Midnight, which was about Big Cypress. And um, in Under the Scales, when we talked to John about the Fall 2000 tour, and we're really excited to have him back. Welcome, John. Hello. Thanks so hey, much for, uh, for joining us, John. My pleasure. So we're talking about this. I'm just going to dive right in. We're talking about this uh, Colorado show from 1990. And we want to know what you remember about the fall of 1990. What was happening with the band and their evolution? Uh, they were doing a lot of shows. <laughs> I look back actually on the fishnet before we connected today. And I see I'm pretty sure they did more shows in 1990 than any other year in their entire history. Uh, said 147 shows in 1990. And I was thinking about the, about that fact on a few different levels and specific to the fall. Um, it was, you know, to do 147 shows in a year is, is a lot for any artist. And particularly given that they were at that time traveling in pretty Spartan conditions, you know, I believe they were traveling in like a kind of a decked out van uh, and then, you know, they had a Mercedes truck that carried all their gear, uh, which was called Jemp, J-E-M-P, J uh, John Ernest Mike Page. That's the, the reason it was called Jemp. And, and they had that. That was a big deal. We got a Mercedes truck to carry all their gear. Um, but, yeah, they were doing a, a lot of shows. And that that fall, I was just looking back on it before they got to Colorado. They had dipped further into the south than they had ever dipped before. Um They'd gone to Texas for the first time, I'm pretty certain, uh, New, uh, New Orleans, uh, Alabama. Um, they had sort of pushed further south. You know, in the in prior months, they had been had a couple of forays getting down into the south and then um, finally connected the dots and kind of continued from the south. This was by far the biggest actual tour they'd ever done. I don't think they'd ever done anything remotely like this in terms of a real tour that covered the, a, a good part of the United States. And John, that means you were on the phone all the time with all these clubs, right? I was <laughs> when they take my calls. <laughs> um, actually, by then they were by then people would take our calls. We developed enough of a reputation in enough places where the word had sort of spread around, and club owners would talk to each other. Or, you know, venues would talk to each other, especially in in regions and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was a different time booking shows back then, and, and I I was. I'm trying to remember when we started working with Monterey Peninsula Iris with Chip Hooper in Monterey. I think I think I was I had some help from a guy named Armand Sadlier who had a company called Vision International and they were out of the DC area. Um, he helped us in in the southern south southeastern region and in certain other areas book shows, but I was booking a lot of them myself, I believe, still back then. Um, and yeah, you know, it was funny. I was remembering the invaluable tool I had back then was Polestar, which is an industry magazine. I don't even know how relevant it is anymore, but back then it was incredibly useful because it had a listing of all the venues in different markets, their size, capacity, typical. I think it even listed like the types of music they often hosted. Um, and the other thing that was really invaluable is you could see the grosses of all the touring acts and, and where which clubs they were playing at and how they did. So kind of piecing all that information together, it was literally just kind of a 
you know, piecing it together situation. Cause I didn't have any buddy giving me a playbook or anything. So Polestar was this invaluable, you know, uh, roadmap, if you will, to try to plan this out. And then obviously as you start developing relationships with people, they suggest other places and things like that. But yeah, no, it was quite an adventure just trying to literally piece it together. And obviously there's college gigs sprinkled in whenever we could get them. And there was a listing also of all the colleges and, and their contact information. Um, you know, I don't even, I'm trying to remember, I guess there was internet back then, but it was pretty primitive. And I don't think a lot of this stuff was very actively set up there. So it was very much still uh, telephones and, you know, actual printed materials that we were dealing with. It so- sounds like you were forging your own road. Were you emulating any bands like was widespread or aquarium rescue unit, or, uh, I mean, even Allman brothers, uh, providing you any kind of a template or any kind of help? Uh, I, I would say that different bands in different regions, right? So like widespread panic, it was super helpful to see where were they playing in the South, right? Cause they were ahead of us in the Southeast, for instance. So where were they playing and how were they doing in different venues? And then eventually we, you know, I think we had gotten to know them by then. I think by then we, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm trying to piece together. We did a one time where we kind of opened a few shows for them down there. That was the first time we went South, I think, and broke a few of the markets down there. We opened for them and they came up and did the same in the East. The band quickly tired of doing any opening stuff that just they just realized it just wasn't their thing to come out and play like a 50 minute set or something. Um, so we did very little of that. I think Dave Matthews opened a couple shows for us. We never opened any shows for them. We let Dave Matthews open a few shows really early in their career, uh, partly because we shared the same agent. Um, but yeah, it was, it was mostly looking at bands kind of in a similar level. Obviously the Almond brothers were way more popular at that, you know, cause they, they were so established that, so that was not, re- wouldn't really have been very useful, but other club acts in different regions, you know, I remember the samples were pretty popular in certain parts of the country, or mm. I'm trying to remember other artists who, you know, I know blues traveler was touring around a lot. Maybe they'd gone to certain markets before we had, or something like that. I mean, I'm just. I'm trying to remember certain bands in that in that ilk, but um, yeah, it was a lot of that kind of thing of just you know connect the dots basically. And John, just so for people who don't know how this works, like when you're you know you're talking about the Fall '90 uh, tour, it was the first time that Fish had played at the Capitol Theater, tracks in Charlottesville, Tipitinas in New Orleans, getting into these you know what what were really popular popular venues. Was it are you at this point trying to convince people that this will be a good show to take on or are they, are you sort of like, like how much do people know about the band, especially in those markets? And how do you, is it more of you convincing them to give the, the gig or is it more like them saying, yeah, we would love to have, have fish at Tipitinas or, or did it just vary by, by venue? It definitely varied by venue. And obviously like the few, you know, the venue of the venues you just listed, you know, those are different conversations at that time. For instance, the Capitol theater, that was a big stretch for them. That was a bigger venue than pretty much. I think that might've been the biggest, you know, sort of typical venue that they'd ever played at the time in the Northeast. That was, you know, kind of a big target for a while. Um, So we were dealing with a guy named Rob Berger uh, at the time, who was the guy who booked the Capitol theater and, he knew all about them. You know, it was sort of the question of when are they ready to make that step there, right? Um, whereas Tipitina's, I don't remember that conversation, but my guess is there was a lot of persuading and, you know, leveraging results in other markets. You know, it was sort of this uh, big 
this process of always trying to build on our successes and use, you know, reference points of, of notable venues and be able to show. And then again, the Polestar started really helping because people could see in Polestar, oh, who's this band Fish? They keep selling out clubs or they're doing, they just sold a whole bunch of tickets in this market or whatever. So it wasn't like me just, you know, them needing to have them believe me, the results were there. The club owners were the ones reporting these results. So it was a really helpful thing to have it from that standpoint too. Got it. That makes sense. And in 1990, I mean, you know, fish was, was always debuting new material, but especially this year, you know, 1990 through 93, like there was so much new, new material. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that and how it kind of works into these set lists. But, um, can we just talk about Colorado quickly? Because I, as I look through these these shows, I, I think as I mentioned earlier, twenty shows in in Colorado um, in in nineteen ninety, and of course there was the famous eighty eight trip, which I think set the laid the groundwork in some way. But that's a lot for a band from all the way across the country. Yeah. Like what what would what were what were the discussions like at the time about Colorado, and um, was there anything that that you all saw as particularly fertile out there, or or just kind of what, what led that um, to that decision. Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. The key point that you made is their first foray out there, which they kind of had no business doing back in 1988 <laughs> because they, there was no connect the dots, right? They were, they were had done a few gigs, they done gigs very much completely in the Northeast. And suddenly it's like, we're going to Colorado. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, and I think at the time they had, some gigs lined up and then I, I wasn't, I had not, it was just before I, I, I was right when I met them, they were about to head out on that first Colorado gig. I, I saw them at Nectar's, the famous show where they did their entire game hen show. And then they were heading to Colorado. If I'm, if I, either that or they were just back, but I think they were heading there. I, 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 I'd have to go back and look at the dates, but anyway, um, they had a bunch of dates lined up and then some of them fell through, but they ended up sort of, you know, wrangling some dates, for, you know, when, once they were out there, it was very scrappy, but you know, the tapes of those shows got out. And as you know, that was the, the viral, you know, that was the thing that drove the viral spread of, you know, their, their, that's how their reputation spread virally. Sorry. I wasn't able to articulate that, but, um, those Colorado tapes, there were soundboard tapes, they got out and there was a lot of kind of, um, crossover, I think somehow between Colorado and Vermont. So there, I think part of it was that there was just this sort of sense that there was culturally and energetically or something, something similar going on in Colorado, you know, a lot of ski areas, um, whatever, whatever the case might be. Plus, uh, you know, Trey had a very close friend, Chris Cottrell, who lived out there. Um, I think he was living out there then he, yep. he lived in Crested Butte for many years. I think he was already out there. I'm not a hundred percent sure of that, but, um, so, uh, they had done that show in 80, those shows in 88, the word got out and then Colorado sort of as a result was always kind of a notch above any other region outside the Northeast because that you got that head start and the word got out. And then, so one of the nice things about Colorado was we could go out there, especially by that fall of 90 and actually get some pretty good, really good paying gigs and, and know we were going to sell the tickets. And so it was, a, it, it allowed us, one of the things that a lot of bands when they're starting out, especially if they don't say have a, a you know, didn't have a record deal or didn't have a, any other way of getting word out besides playing live music, they tend to 
a lot of them t- would tend to sort of stay in the markets where they were strongest. And, and then if they were careful, they, if they weren't careful, they'd play the, the, themselves out because they'd play them too often. So we were always trying to push it as much as we possibly could and get out into new markets. And Colorado became this nice anchor. It's like, okay, we, we'll, 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 we'll make a good amount of money in Colorado and that allow us to basically lose money or break even going through Texas and going through the South or whatever. So, you know, in the grand scheme of that tour, they probably made very little money but it allowed us to break all these new markets. Um, and Colorado was a key piece of that. If, if every, if everywhere we'd gone outside the Northeast and maybe kind of partway into the, you know, kind of the Southeast had been brand new markets, I'm not sure if it would have been financially feasible to pull it off. And so the fact that they had that allowed us to start stringing together other markets. And then, you know, as you know, after that, after the Colorado shows, they went back up through the Midwest and they hadn't done much in the Midwest. I don't think before that. So, um, it was um, a really valuable thing that they went out there in 1988 and got that whole buzz started because it, it became a real anchor and then eventually allowed us to push further out into the West Coast. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers the question. It That's does. amazing. It does, for sure. And and you're talking a lot about fish moving around geographically, but also fish content-wise was always evolving. And RJ alluded to all this new music coming out. Um, Lawn Boy had just come out, and typically for Fish, they're always debuting material from the next album. Yeah. So in in '90, uh, they debuted Tweezer, Cavern, Stash, Landlady, Horn, right? Many others. Stuff and from Picture just, Nectar, right? Yeah, and they're always adding music to their sets. And I'm just wondering, uh, how do you think this affected their live performances? It might help in not burning out an area if they're always evolving. For sure. For sure. They could come back to a place and, and well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to say about that. I mean, first of all, I think it's just to step back for a second. It's remarkable to me that they were creating so much new music when they were doing so many shows Yeah, because it's really hard to do both, you know, you, to, to really create music for them was, I mean, you know, as you know, and you're very close with Trey, like he's just a fountain of creativity and just constant. I mean, like he'd be, working on songs while they were touring, which is remarkable because most artists, when they're touring, they're just kind of in tour mode. And it's just, it's, it's all they can do to just kind of just slog through that end of things. Um, But it is remarkable how many new songs were written when they hardly gave themselves a break at all in that whole year. And yet all this, not, not just new material, but really, really good material that stood the test of time and some of their greatest songs uh, we're all getting debuted in the midst of all of this. So I just think that's worth noting is that, you know, they weren't one of these bands that, you know, kind of parked themselves in a, you know, in a barn somewhere for four months and just wrote music and then went out on tour and toured that music. They were creating this music while being a very active live band, kind of nonstop, just barnstorming around on, you know, in the middle of it all. So I think that's really noteworthy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think both for the band themselves, it was an incredibly exciting time in the sense that they knew they were creating this really good music. And they were so they always had stuff every time they stepped on stage, no matter how many shows they were playing, there was there was a sense of newness and excitement about what they were going to play that night because they they just were, you know, there was always new songs and the songs would always evolve in the course of tours. You know what I mean? Like the songs would get debuted and then you could, if you, you know, go back and actually were to trace a bunch of these songs over a whole bunch of shows, you can see they just got better and better. And and they were sort of almost figuring them out on stage in, in these shows to a certain degree, you know, um, they, they, they didn't perfect them before they, I mean, they were obviously 
well drilled and rehearsed before they would debut them, but it was it was, they weren't they weren't set in stone by any means. And obviously, there's the improvis improvisational part of it that was constantly changing with the songs too. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, I think, and then from the audience perspective, um, yeah, if the band came through a few months earlier and suddenly they came through and just hit you with an entirely different show and the band was very mindful like when you know just the way they are now and they would come through a market but especially then because they were playing them with a lot more frequency than they do now you know they would be very mindful of what did we play in this market the last time you know what i mean i remember trey asking uh you know uh always someone, someone who worked for the band possibly you uh for the set list and even the set list prior for the last two times yeah like the real my, real awareness of and, and ultimately, though, the other thing that they did right from the start, which is, of course, proven to be just, just such an amazing thing for them, is they instilled this kind of almost agreement with their audience that the most exciting thing that could happen at a fish show was to be at one where they debuted a bunch of new material. Instead of like, OK, time to go, you know, take a bathroom break. They're playing some new song I've never heard. It was like the place would just absolutely freeze if they were playing a new song, even back then. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And so what a luxury as an artist to have that rapport with your audience instead of this rapport of we just want to hear the hits. You know what I mean? They didn't have any hits and they didn't have, <laughs> there were, there, I mean, there were certain songs probably be like, Oh, I really want to hear you enjoy myself or run like an antelope or David Bowie or whatever. But if you didn't hear one of those songs, it wasn't like, Oh, I can't believe they didn't play that. Even back then there wasn't really any song that they were expected to play on any given night, you know? And that was so liberating, I think for them artistically. And again, it's, it's a grind doing all those shows, just market after market, especially when you're, you know, playing in front of new people and having to really win people over who a lot of whom have never heard your music at all. It's a very different dynamic than walking on stage to uh, thousands of fans who know every little nook and cranny of your repertoire. Back then, it was like, who are these guys? You know what I mean? And they had to walk on stage, read the crowd. OK, we're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And there's a bunch of guys, you know, wearing boots and, you know, and so we're going to we're going to rock this place tonight. You know what I mean? And and that's another thing that Trey was good at is like. It wasn't like we just do our show no matter what. It was like, who are we playing to? Yeah. And we've got a lot of different shadings. We can, you know, we, we can take on a lot of different personalities. We're still fish, but we can emphasize X, Y, or Z and win these guys over from the start. You know what I mean? And they were very good at that. Right. Absolutely. And and you, you mentioned, like, not only are they touring and playing 140 whatever shows this year, and writing new music, but they're also one thing that is evident, particularly in this show. I went back and listened probably for the first time in, in several years. Um, what is completely evident is how much practice had to go in to be able to play these songs at that level. No doubt. So they're, they're constantly practicing, too. I that's mean, right. you can practice on the road, but when you're changing songs, that's, you know, someone who's practicing, I don't know, like Harry Styles, whose show... Uh, whatever, 15 shows at the Garden are roughly the same every night. Fish didn't have that luxury either. That's right. Yeah, no, they, they I mean, um, they obviously had a, an overall a sm smaller body of material than, say, they do now. You know, the, you think of the 13 show run at the Garden or something where they didn't repeat a song. And just yeah. this, and obviously, I'm sure they were rehearsing before every one of those shows to make sure they were brushed up on those songs. But yeah, no, they. I, I feel like in some ways... 1990 every song they were playing they were they were completely dialed in on those songs you know what i mean because they didn't have 300 songs or whatever to try to remember all these intricate passages of and you know it's it, it amazes me now how many 
different songs they can pull out and play very, very well, but they aren't quite as crisp and quite as perfect as they were back then where every song was one that they were playing regularly enough for the most part where they really had it tight, you know, and that's a really good observation. Yeah. And we're back. Um, John, when you're, you mentioned you weren't at the 11 to uh, 90 show. I'm, I'm just curious when you're think like you send, send the band out on a, you know, tour to Colorado. Are you, are you sitting by the phone? Is, are, is someone calling you from a pay phone and like, yeah, the show last night was good. X number of people showed up. Like, are you, are you getting the updates and waiting for updates like every night? Or do you just get kind of a debrief after a couple of weeks? I'm just, we, we live in this world of constant communication. And I know yeah. back then it was, it was pretty different. Yeah, we didn't have cell phones. Uh, I I feel, I, I, yeah, I was in touch with them pretty much every night. You know, I knew where they were staying. I would check in with them. I was, I was, I felt like I was pretty dialed into things. I would get out when I could to shows. But honestly, I was thinking about, like, God, I didn't go to nearly as many shows back then. And I was thinking, yeah, well, I was 23. We were just getting started. I, I couldn't afford to, <laughs> you know, I mean, literally it was, you know, that was the economics. They, they were in such a, an expansion mode that we really, it was like, everybody was on austerity measures. It was like, we're just, we're, we are, everybody's sacrificing, you know, what could be a slightly more comfortable existence, again, if they had just played to their strong markets, just so that we can expand. You know, we, I used to liken it a little bit to, you know, the board game Risk. Um, it's, it's, it felt a little like that. It's like we are trying to expand our territory as fast as possible while not sort of depleting our resources so much that we overextended ourselves and we, and, 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 it, and no longer, you know, they had to be able to make a living. They had stopped their day jobs by then. They were all in. It was not that long before that, that they'd all kind of just completely given up any, any other source of income. So this was it, you know what I mean? And, and, and we were doing well, but it wasn't, it wasn't like anybody was getting rich from this. So yeah, I, I was basically home base and would get out to a few shows here and there when I could. And yeah, it wasn't the level of communication that uh, certainly everyone has today. So it was, you know, I was a little more detached from it for sure. But, but certainly every day I would be checking in with, with, with the team for sure. That, that brings up a question and, and it, I'm not sure how you'd answer it at this stage because this is still early 1990. But were you, were you still thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to work out and, and I might someday need a real job. Or were you thinking like, I know I want to be a manager, but if fish doesn't pull its weight, I might need to add a few other bands to my roster. Or were you all in on fish by this point? Uh, I wasn't sure. I, I, it's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I definitely wasn't wanting to manage other bands. Uh, I, you know, I, I was, I very much always thought of myself as just in the fish business. I, I didn't come in. I didn't come into management from the standpoint of like, I want to be a manager. I came to management because I loved fish and formed a relationship with them. And they asked me to manage them. And, and I figured out what that meant in the context of fish. Um, but I wasn't ever a band manager who kind of built a stable of acts or, or ever, ever, ever aspired to do that. Um, the, uh, there was a, there was some point along the way. And I think it was, was, it hadn't happened yet where I did have that sort of realization, like, I guess this is what I'm doing and, uh, you know, professionally for the foreseeable future. And, and this is going to be good. 
Um, it was still, you know, uh, I guess, yeah, just, it, it hadn't, it, it, it hadn't fully sunk into me yet that this was, this wasn't this thing I was doing till I figured out what I was going to do in my life. <laughs> this was what I was going to do. Uh, and, um, but I, in terms of like, was I all in, in the sense, like I had a, a, a very deep belief that they were going to continue to just keep growing. You know, I was, I was thinking before we had this call, you know, there's that saying, you know, I think it's mostly like an investment saying, you know, past performance is no predictor of future results or something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> warning. <laughs> Um, but in the case of fish, I do think it was very much a predictor of future results, right? Like we saw in enough markets, like, okay, we go, we play the first time a hundred people show up, they really get their minds blown. They go back and they don't just like resume normal life. They go back and they testify and they talk to a bunch of people and they say, I can't believe you weren't at the show last night. It was incredible. Like, I can't, who are these guys? You know what I mean? Um, and 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 then they come back sort of and we figured out certain intervals like, OK, we come back about three or four months later. You know what I mean? And there's the, the, the hunger has built back up. The people who saw it are dying to see it again. They're bringing friends. And the next time it's 300 people or whatever. You know what I mean? Like there was a very predictable um, kind of pattern. And we saw it not just in the Northeast, but as we broke new markets, we started to see the same pattern. Um, and, and it was important to get back with, with regularity. That's why they were touring so much. Like if we waited too long, then it would sort of atrophy and that initial excitement that they generated from the first time they went to a market would dissipate and, and, and we would lose the momentum we were creating, you know? So there were, there was this real feeling like we got to keep, keep going, keep returning to places that we've, you know, we've, planted seeds in and keep developing it. So I was very convinced that in an organic, gradual way, and it was hard work because these were not big leaps, you know, they didn't skip any size venue along the way. You know what I mean? Like if you look at their increments along in most markets, they played the small club and then the slightly bigger club and then the, then the really big club and then the small theater. And then, you know, and then hopefully there was like a midsize auditorium and, you know, they never really had that leap that a lot of artists will go from like playing clubs and suddenly they're in arenas or whatever, which I think in the long run was a really a real blessing for them in the sense that everything they were able to. Um, there's it's it's a radically different experience to play an arena than a club. And for artists, you get thrown onto an arena stage like there's a real art to playing a really big room and working a room of that size. Uh and the fact that they work their way up slowly, they got used to playing different size rooms and all that. I mean, I'm digressing here, but yeah, that was, uh, I, so I was very convinced that they were, um, destined to keep growing. I, 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 I'd be lying if I said I was convinced they were going to reach the statue that they did, but I, it certainly didn't seem like a far-fetched idea that they could, you know? Yeah. Um, that, although that I will sense. say this there, you know, back then, there were a lot of skeptics and a lot of people just thought they were weird. Um, (laughs) You know, like really like, you know, people didn't really know what to make of them. They were really eclectic. They, they, their music spanned so many genres. It was very kind of inside joke, you know, you know, cryptic. Um, And obviously the improvisation, the long improv was very attractive to some people. And a lot of people just thought it was boring, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But largely, they were just seen as kind of eccentric and weird. Um, you know, they, they've sort of now they're just seen as much more of an established kind of 
institution, if you will. But back then they were seen as this sort of weird little band from Vermont that nobody knew quite what, you know, bucket to put them in. I mean, that's, that's something that's so amazing to me, John, about this era is there's this, of course, you know, like you said, attention to detail about set lists, attention to detail about the audience, incredible attention to detail in terms of playing and practicing. And then there's just the, the, the jokes and like the goofy side of it. That is, I'm just like, I wonder, did you guys ever talk about that balance or was it just part of the DNA? Because there, there's an argument for like, you know, you go play some of these places for the first time, like this show from 1990, this was a thousand person room. And I think some of the reviews on Fishnet at least say it sold out eventually. So, you know, you're getting in front of a lot of new people, but you're still like doing ridiculous shit. Like, you know, Fishman playing the trombone or, or some right. of these inside jokes. Like, was that just, was it ever discussed? Were you ever like, you know, maybe, maybe you guys need to ease up on the humor or, or was it just sort of part of it from the beginning? Uh, I, I think their sense of humor has been a pretty signature part of who they are and they knew it and they, and they saw that when they did it, even as they played bigger rooms or whatever, that as long as it was, had its place in the show and didn't sort of overstay its welcome, if you will, <laughs> uh, you know, a Fishman cameo on the trombone, it was like really good comic relief and kind of like a, a you know, an exhale for everybody. You know what I mean? Like these shows are intense. And there's a lot of a lot of very, you know, intense musical moments in the show. And I think they were wise enough to realize that if they go out there and just do that the entire time, they're going to fatigue people. And so there was a real sense of cadence and, you know, you know, I don't know, just just ebb and flow of, of some sort in their shows. And I think humor often played a really good part of that. And it was I think there was a. a there's something so human and personal about their humor and, 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 and the fact that they don't, you know, here's a band who are obviously incredibly talented musically, but don't take themselves too seriously. And that's a really attractive combination. I think for a lot of people, it's like, Hey, these guys are just everyday guys who happen to be really, really good at what they do. Um, as opposed to, you know, artists who are really good technically who kind of stare at their navels and don't really, you know, reveal themselves and who they are as people to the audience as much. And that's not as attractive to people. I think that they, they, you know, I've probably said this in other interviews before, but one of Trey's idols was Glenn Miller. And he loved to talk about how the swing era was this magical era where it was popular music of the time. And these, and these artists were both incredibly gifted technically and you had all these sophisticated harmonic arrangements and all that kind of stuff. And you could, but it was also popular music where people just went out and danced. And I don't think they ever lost that that awareness that they're entertaining too. You know what I mean? And the, the humor and and they happen to be really funny. <laughs> they they had really good humor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it also showed the dynamic between the four of them, right? Because um, it showed how much they loved each other and how and how much vulnerability and trust they were able to uh, have with each other. And you know, um, I don't know. I, I think it's I, I don't think you can underestimate how important the humor humorous aspect of uh, things has been for their career. I really appreciate that. That's, yeah. that's great insight. Thank you. Um, and, and you mentioned Glenn Miller and this this show happens to have taken place in the Glenn Miller ballroom. That's so funny. I didn't. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> I, was, I was completely forgetting that. That's and, earlier, and earlier we mentioned the Allman Brothers, and I think that might have been because subliminally 
I heard the Allman Brothers is being announced as an act that's about to come play there. Uh, early in the very beginning of this, before the show, there was an announcer, and he said yeah. there's a, f- a few acts, and Allman Brothers was in that. And I was thinking, that's interesting. Aren't they much bigger than than? That's Fest? that's really puzzling. Yeah. They would have been playing there, huh? Yeah. Anyway, so John, John, earlier you talked about the kind of virality of of Fish back then being, you know, based on these the tapes, you know, and 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 getting some of these recordings out there. Um, this. I remember when I started collecting tapes in the mid nineties, this was definitely one of those tapes that, that was highly circulated. Um, you know, the soundboard, the, the quality is amazing. There's a lot of really just like you guys both have said, really precision kind of playing and some, some great improv in here. Um, but I feel like this was circulated pretty heavily, um, even compared to some of these other fall 1990 shows. I don't, I don't really know why, except that, you know, it's like a good representative show. Um, when you guys, either of you guys, when you're listening back to this, did any any point in the show in particular stick out to you or any observations that, that you had uh, listening to this? Uh, I honestly didn't listen back to it before this. I I, okay. I, I looked at the set list, but um, I, I didn't listen to it. So I, I, I have a, a lot. I mean, I mean. You get all the way. I to should have. Time. You're making me want to go back and listen to it now. <laughs> all this, all this talk about that era. You're going to want to, John. Um, especially, well, so I mean, highlights. I would say, um, you get all the way to the very end of the second set, and David Bowie, the last song, becomes this unbelievably. They didn't want to leave the stage. You could tell. Um, it, it became a tease fest. There's at least seven or eight teases right in the beginning of David Bowie. Right. I saw in the recap that including a bunch of the shows from a bunch of the songs that were played earlier in the show. Earlier. It's incredible. Yeah. And also uh, Buried Alive in the Middle of Possum, which was was crazy. Um, and also the the signal that the language, the secret language happened a few times in this show. And um, I was also looking at the set list, you know, having been a fan since they started and having just seen them at Dick's, the last show they've played. um, I was trying to think, like, if this set list appeared uh, today, what would stand out? And I guess there's a couple of things that you probably wouldn't see. I mean, landlady standing alone, not inside, punch you in the eye. The sloth is very rare. Um, the ass festival is rare. But all these things have been played. Esther, Esther is rare, es- I would imagine. Esther is rare, but has been played, you know, within the past year, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a few other things. I, I love that the second set uh, dip into Gamehenge, too, with Colonel Forbin and Mockingbird and Lizards. Uh, it's a great show, and it's played flawlessly, and the sound is phenomenal. That's a great, great summer. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the other thing I would add, just the possum and with it buried alive in the middle of it, um, at the end of the first set, I mean, the fact that they were able to go in – in and out of buried alive like that, like just with that amount of precision without any like, false, false steps whatsoever. That just, not it's even just incredible. Little. Kind of a, just, just speaks to what you were talking about earlier, John, with the practice. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. A great show. Um, Tom, is there anything else that, that we, that we want to ask John before we let him get back to his, his day? I think we got a lot from John and, and uh, you know, I just want to make sure that you know how grateful we are that you're willing to recount this era for us because it's an important era that a lot of today's fans don't know much about. Yeah, my pleasure. No, it's really fun to uh, reminisce about it. It was, uh, 
it was a, a, a fun time thinking back on it, you know, it was, and, uh, and it was fun touring around with you and the, and the band, uh, going to these different venues and, and like you said, going to different cities and a different venue every time that was phenomenal as a fan. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a very exciting time. So a real sense of possibility and, uh, um, yeah, the, the band was just, you know, not that they haven't always been all in, but there was a different kind of all in back then. You know what I mean? It was just a, 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 an immense amount of focus and commitment around, you know, making it work. They knew that this was their moment and they just needed to go out and, and you know, do these shows. And and honestly, you know, the other reason I think they did 147 shows that they really, like you were saying, they, you know, talking about how they didn't want to go off the stage playing David Bowie. Like they just really, truly loved doing shows and still do and it you know it's it's uh you know yeah so it wasn't it wasn't it was a grind at some level but they couldn't wait to get on stage the next night and and do it again you know perfect way to end john so thank you our osiris audience for joining us remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch on the next episode we'll be talking about a legendary show from 1991 with the person who happened to own the venue till then blaze on Osiris. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny streaming everywhere now. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.